0: Amen. If you've got elementary age kids uh, or below, we'd love them to be a part of what we have going on. I see Miss Lauren right there, and we'd love for you to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine kids, ministry, and family. This week, we're uh, we're still in this little hiatus, a uh, little pause from the book of Acts. Those of you who have been with us for a while, we have been—oh, thank you so much, sweet girls. Are these pictures for me? I love it. I can get my hair fixed. <laughs> Love them. It's awesome. Man, I've put on some weight. I need to <laughs> adjust that. Um, new year, new resolutions. Actually, you know, we had talked about this last week, right? We had talked about. How the New Year is like this perfect time to begin to think about starting over and uh, beginning again and getting a fresh start and how most Americans will make some kind, I think it's like 80-something percent will make some kind of New Year's resolution and we talked about the, the, I read this article and the top three were like, I want to live a, uh, like a a, a kind of a more full life, I want to lose weight, I want to be healthier, those type of, of resolutions and most of us make resolutions with the hope that if I change something about my my life, one of these behaviors, it will have a profound impact on the whole. So if I uh, eat healthier, then I'm going to feel better. If I lose weight, I'll appreciate sort of my life more. I'll feel better about myself. Or if I live life to the fullest or whatever those things are, I learn to juggle or play the guitar like or read a book a week. Or, you know, we add those things to try and adjust the whole. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, those are great things and they're great ways to start over. But I started thinking as I was really looking at my life and kind of the mess that I've been over the course of my my existence and, and who God calls me to be. And I was reading the book of Colossians chapter 3 and I was realizing that scripture has this really powerful picture of what a life that follows Christ is called to be. And not in terms of called to perform or in terms of action, but really who God says we are and how that should change the way that we live. And then what if in 2016 and beyond, we desired not to adjust specific things in our life to try and change the whole, but to actually live into who God says we are. And so last week we began this kind of journey by looking at some very specific things um, that God calls us to. And this week we're actually going to take it one step farther and just continue down that track. Because as I kept going, I realized that when when you look at this sort of whole passage that Paul is putting to the church, the young believing church in Colossae, when you put it all together, it's really a powerful picture. And it's honestly what I deeply desire my life and our church to look like. And, to be. and so we're going to pick up on our train of thought from last week, and I'll catch you up to speed in a minute. But if you've got that Bible, I want you to open up to Colossians chapter 3. And last week we began in verse 12, and I'm going to read them all, and then we're going to pick up in fifteen, um, chapter 15 this week. Just kind of a real quick recap about uh, the Colossian, the book of Colossians. Colossians. Um, Paul had this kind of special love for that city. It was a city that was in Asia. It was about 100 miles away from Ephesus. Most scholars believe that the city was probably evangelized. During that year and a half that Paul spent in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. So those of you that have been doing the Acts walk with us about a month and a half ago, we talked about Paul's third missionary journey, and he spent all this time in Ephesus. And it says that while they were in Ephesus, the whole region, right, got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most people believe that in that time, uh, out of Ephesus, the city of Colossae, which was about uh, 100 miles away, that the gospel came there. And this small group of believers... Uh, became the, the center point of the church. And so Paul wrote this letter, probably about AD 62, from prison in Rome, the first time he was in prison, and he wrote them the letter for really two purposes. One, to, to make sure that they understood the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus was over all and in all and through all, and that in him all things held together. And to two, to kind of push back on some heresy that had entered the church saying that Jesus actually wasn't enough. So the letter really is written for this group of young believers to say, not only is Jesus absolutely and totally authoritative, but he is enough for you and for always. And so this picture really is, and this is who we're called to be as followers of Christ. So that's kind of a a little quick overview of Colossians, and then we're going to kind of jump into the verses uh, that we looked at. But before we do that, let's take a minute, let's go before the Lord, let's pray. Let's ask God to teach our hearts this morning. Um, Lord, we love you. We love you. We are thankful that you love us more, though, than we could ever love you. God, we're thankful that even in the midst of our best efforts, um, we fall completely and totally short. And we thank you for that because you rescue us. God, we cannot find ourselves or, or our way to you. We cannot pick ourselves up. Lord, you are the God who does all of that movement. So whatever we brought here this morning, whatever lack of faith, whatever fear, whatever insecurity, whatever worry, or whatever, um, just failing, God, you are a God who is enough and meets us right where we are. Take a moment in your heart and just ask God to meet you where you are this morning. Um, whatever that means, whatever you have to express to him, just ask God to meet you and to teach you. take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this each week, encouraging our community to be people that pray for each other. Uh, Pray that God would move in that person. Maybe you know their name. Maybe you don't. Just pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and exalted and lifted up. We ask that you would be our teacher. God, we take seriously our encounter with your word. We believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we ask that you would teach our hearts, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so we're picking up in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, and we're going to look at the three verses we looked at last week, and then we're going to continue this train of thought. But Paul is basically saying, listen, to this young church, this group of young believers, he's saying, I want you to understand who you are now as people that have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Your life is called to look and be different, and it should affect your attitude and how you live, not because of what you do, but because of who you are now in Christ. And this is where we started last week, and then we'll, we'll read down. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these things put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ uh, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Last week what we began was we began by looking at those first verses in chapter 12, talking about some fundamental theological truths that we have to understand about who we are before we can really begin to move in a direction that says, God, I want to live a life that follows and honors you. And Paul tells these new believers, he goes, I want you to understand three things about who you are in Jesus. And I won't go into them. We explored them last week. But he he said, basically, look, I want you to understand, right, that you are chosen and that you are holy and that you are dearly loved. So God took the initiative and he made a move and he drew you to himself. And he calls you holy, which is not moral perfection, but instead means set apart. It comes from a Hebrew idea called kadosh, which means I've been set apart by God. I've been called by him. I've been set apart for his purposes. And he calls me dearly loved. And we spent a lot of time last week exploring what that meant. And if we truly understand that God has taken the initiative with us, that we didn't find our way to Him, that in the middle of our sin and struggle and fear and failure, God stepped in and He grabbed us. And He said, I'm going to reorient your life, not for your selfish sort of carnal way that wants to please yourself, but in a holy set-apart way that is for my glory. And in the middle of all that, what I want you to understand is that you are dearly and deeply loved. And Paul says, look, if you grasp those things, you understand what God has done for you through the person of Jesus Christ, it will change your attitude and it will change the way that you live. And he goes on to say, because of those things, right, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Literally put them on, right, that the world might see, that you might dress yourselves in these things. Bear with each other, right, carry each other's burdens, load Be vulnerable. Be authentic. Carry bear with one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And we talked a lot about this last week. What would that truly mean to forgive the people the way that Jesus, or people in my life the way that Jesus has forgiven me? We talked about the call of our lives, that as we bind those things together with love, with the love that God calls us, dearly loved, that if we could actually say, God, this is who I want to be, not because of how I can perform for you, but because of who you say I am. And where we ended last week was kind of, what would it look like for us to truly say, instead of, you know, vowing that in 2016 I'm going to learn to play the recorder or the cello or read whatever, I'm going to say, God, I want to live the life that you've called me to. I want to learn to clothe myself with compassion and gentleness and kindness. I I want to forgive as you forgave me. I want to look at that person that has so hurt me, that has has abandoned me, that has wrecked my life, and I want to love them the way that you have loved me because I I have abandoned you, and I have chosen myself over you. What if I loved people the way that you loved me? Well, Paul continues that thought, right? And he says, look, these things are tied together. So once we understand those theological truths and the way it should adjust our attitudes in our life, There's a few things that have to happen. And this is what he says in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and since as members of one body you were called to peace. So he says, listen, as you begin to live these truths out, there has to be something, right, that you allow to settle in your life. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Which, of course, begs the question, what is the peace of Christ? And scripture talks about it a lot. It talks about having giving our lives over to the peace of God, the peace of Christ. And here, Paul says, let that peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's not actually a complicated concept, right? My definition of the peace of Christ is this. It is the spiritual and emotional rest, right, that comes when we surrender to Jesus as our highest joy and when we trust that he is and will always be enough. Okay, so a lot of words there, but the definition of the peace of Christ that I, I piece together through Scripture is this. It's the spiritual and emotional rest, right, rest that comes, right, when we surrender to Jesus as our highest joy and trust that he is and always will be enough. Now think about that for a moment. Spiritual and emotional rest. Most of us don't live there. We live in spiritual unrest. We're either performing for God, or we think he's disappointed in us, or we're, we're trying to do enough so that God gives us some kind of blessing. But most of us would not describe our spiritual lives as restful or as peaceful. Most of our spiritual lives are a constant battle. Mine is between the things that I know that God is calling me not to do, think, say, behave, act, whatever, and the way that my body and my sinful nature tears at me, right? There's a constant war going on, and it doesn't feel restful. Most of our spiritual lives are not in that rest because of a couple things that I'll mention in just a second. But that spiritual rest, it's also an emotional rest. Most of us think that the word rest means we go home on a Saturday and we take a nap or we get good night's sleep at night. But most of our unrest is actually what takes place in our heart and our mind. It's emotional in nature. It's spiritual in nature. The reason we can't rest is because there are things that pound our minds and hearts that we can't let go of or we can't give over to the Lord. It's not just because there's not enough hours in the day. It's because we've given ourselves to a mental battle, right? And we refuse to do a couple of things. One, let Jesus be our highest joy. Think about what that statement is for a minute. A lot of us are not content in our lives because we think that if we just had something else, then life would be truly good or I would be truly happy. If I could just get rid of this debt or finally be married or we could have... Do this, or we could accomplish this, or finally get that job, or get out of this, whatever that thing is, then I will be at a place where I am finally joyful, that real joyful and contentment. And so we are always one step away from living totally content. But having the peace of Christ rule our lives means that we have surrendered, in other words, given up to Jesus being our highest joy, meaning there is nothing in my life that will ever bring me more joy than my relationship with Jesus. And every time I try and find something to supplement my emotional mess that is not Jesus, I will live in unrest. I will live in spiritual and emotional unrest. Why? Because Scripture tells us that Jesus is our highest joy. And any time we put something in his place, we will not find rest. Spiritually, emotionally, or any other way. Surrendering to the idea that Jesus, you are my highest joy. And the second part of that is, and trusting, truly trusting, that he is, meaning now, presently, and always will be, absolutely enough for me. Okay? Most of us don't feel that way. We feel empty in our lives. We feel alone because we are trying to put other things in a place that God has said, I am enough for you always and forever. But we try and cram all kinds of things in there to give our wandering, restless hearts the peace that only comes from surrendering to the idea that Jesus is enough. If I could just have this, if I could just get past February, if I can just make it to this hurdle, if we can just do this, then everything will be fine. And guess what? It never is because there is always something else. Always. Because we as a people, as followers of Christ, wrestle with surrendering to the idea that Jesus is enough right now for me. Take everything else away and God you are all I need and you will always be all I need. The peace of Christ is coming to grips with that truth. And guess what Paul says? He says, let that peace, right, that peace that Jesus is our highest joy and trusting that he is and always will be enough, let that do what? Rule in your hearts. That word rule is a really powerful word. It means have dominion over. In other words, be the supreme authority over your hearts. Let that peace of Christ rule Over your hearts. I don't know about you, but you know what rules my heart? Fear, anxiety, worry, lack of patience, disbelief. Those things rule my heart. They invade my soul, and I give them room and rule and dominion over me. And I feed them. And I feed those insecurities. And I feed that low self esteem. And I feed my fear. And I feed my anxiety. And I give it power. And I let it rule. And I let it have dominion. Over me. And what Paul says is, listen, as followers of Christ, the only thing that should rule your heart is the spiritual rest that comes from knowing that Jesus is your highest joy, that he is, is and always will be enough. If you are living in a place of spiritual unrest, emotional unrest, I can guarantee you it's because you've let something else rule your heart. I promise. It's a person... It's an emotion, it's a fear, it's a thing, it's a behavior, it's sin, whatever it is, it's different for all of us. But we have let something else rule our hearts and we have believed that lie. For a lot of us, it's what we do when we walk and we look in the mirror in the morning. We let that lie rule our lives. For some of us, it's the insecurity of feeling like we will always be single for our whole lives and if I could just find someone else to be there for me, I would feel full. We believe that lie. For some of us, it's the fear of letting go of that one behavior that we know is destroying us. But yet we don't know what to do without it. We let that lie rule our hearts. What Paul says is, listen, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What is it that is ruling your heart? Is it the peace of Christ, right? Highest joy that Jesus is and always will be enough. And then he says, listen, because it's not just about the sort of mental battle that is that ruling. It's also taking place in your relationships. And he says, listen, let it rule in your life since, right, as one body you were called to peace. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you will know that the early church was— they struggled. They fought a lot with each other. They argued and they debated. And a lot of Paul's letters were written to address heretical ideas that had popped up. And if you read 1 Corinthians, the church had even divided itself into four sections. And some were saying, I follow Apollos. And others were saying, I follow Paul. And I follow Jesus. And I follow, you know, they split themselves. And even in, Colossian, in the Colossian church, they were arguing over who was really in charge, Jesus or somebody else. And Paul says, listen, when we surrender our hearts to the peace of Christ, we have to understand that it should affect our relationships. We are all part of one singular body of Christ. Now, this is never more true than it is for the 21st century church, right? We are as fractured and as split as we've ever been throughout history. We have more denominations now, of course, than there's ever been historically. Denominations are split over everything from what they believe about baptism, communion, dancing, instruments, ideology, word, or just a fact that I don't like going there, right? And most of the time, we look at other communities in that context with this sort of judgmental picture. I can't believe they use a smoke machine, or I can't believe you do this, or I can't believe you have that. Or we went there, and they never talked about this, or whatever. And we, we look at these movements, and we pass these judgments, Right? I'd never go to a Baptist church, or I'd never go to a Methodist church, or, or whatever, or I only will go to those things. that we, we line ourselves up, and we pass these movements of judgment on our communities. And we put up these walls, and we fight for what's best for me or for us. Of course, our church isn't like that. We're perfect and great and amazing, but everybody else is terrible. But this is really how we approach it, because really the truth is, and I'll say this really carefully, but most of you have come to this church because you left a church you were disenchanted with. Church growth happens in our community of Oklahoma City mainly by disenchanted people leaving churches they're disenchanted with and bringing their baggage to whatever new movement they have until they become disenchanted with that and they go somewhere else. And it's cyclical. It just is. Until they do something that I don't agree with, I don't like, I don't, whatever, and we move on. And I know that because I've taught every new member class we have. And most of the time it's, we didn't like this, we didn't like it. And look, I'm not saying that that's any re- not a reason not to get up and leave. I'm just telling you that most of our movements are because we're disenchanted with one particular group, organization, body, or whatever, until we go find the one that we like. The problem with that in its core nature Is that we tend to hold on to baggage and frustration about whatever community is that we left or that we were a part of. Typically. But what Paul's saying is listen, if we really let that peace of Christ rule in our hearts, it should affect the way that we think about the whole body of Christ. Like we are all part of this same. If you've ever traveled anywhere and spent any time with believers outside of the western United States, you will recognize very quickly that we are like the only part of the world that is deeply ingrained in our evangelical Protestant divisions. Now, there's Catholic and Protestant divisions all over the world, but our evangelical Protestant divisions, we are tied to them. I've traveled to like 37 countries doing mission work over the course of 20 years, and I have never, ever, ever, ever run into a believer that asked me what denomination I was in another country, ever. All I've ever been asked is, are you a believer? Are you a follower of Christ? And I've been hugged, and I've been kissed, which is weird, but I've been kissed and hugged because I'd said I believed in Jesus. Paul says, stop fighting with each other about semantics and realize that you're part of one body of Christ. Period. Be excited for each other. Celebrate with each other. Pray for each other. As a church, how are we praying for the other churches that are up and down Western? How are we fighting for them? How are we supporting the whole body of Christ? Paul goes on to say this. He says, As you are part of one body and you are called to peace, right? And be thankful. I love that statement because it's really short and it's really hard to mess up. But as followers of Christ, we are called to be people that are grateful and thankful. See, my life is filled with thankfulness to the Lord, but it always has a sort of a but attached to it, right? It's got, God, I'm really grateful, but if we could finish this thing, or if you could just, you know, I'm I'm grateful for this, but I just need one more piece. It always sort of is attached to this thing. But he says, listen, if you really understand who Jesus is and what he did, did for you, you would be a people that were just thankful. Like it just came out of you. It just overflowed from you. Gratitude and thankfulness, and humility, and as we looked at last week, compassion, and kindness, right? What marks your life? Would people describe you as someone who's grateful and thankful? Would that be the echoes of your heart? Or are you a person that's just sort of one more thing I need from God before my life is filled? He says, listen, let the peace of Christ, right, the highest joy, he is and always will be enough. Let that rule in your hearts and let it adjust how you see people. Like let it change the way you see other churches, our own community, other believers, people the world. Let that change you because of what God did for you. And be thankful. Look, I don't know where your life would be without Jesus, but I can tell you where mine would be. It would be a disastrous train wreck. I have nothing, nothing outside of Jesus. Thankful. Be thankful. Look, we all recognize there's people all over the world that have less than we do or or whatever, and we take our stuff and our lives for granted because it's never enough. We live in a Western culture, right? We're gathering and holding on to and hoarding wealth is a part of our DNA. And it's never enough, and we're very seldom really grateful. It's always one more step, and then I'll have it together grateful. I've got a roof. I've got breath, right? You've loved me when I'm unlovable. Be thankful. He goes on to say this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach, admonish, and admonish one another in wisdom, and as you sing psalms and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the Word of Christ that Paul's referring to is actually the teaching of Jesus. It was passed around in letters like this. Paul's letters were written as those movements in the Word of Christ. We have the whole of Scripture. And what this is basically saying is let the Word of God, the Word of Christ, let it dwell in you richly. I love the idea of dwelling in you, because dwelling means to live, to take up residence. When we moved to Oklahoma City in 2008, we moved our family into a house, right? And we hung things on the wall, we put our clothes in the closets, and we turned in. Every corner of that place was marked somehow by the life of the praetors. For the good and the bad, we dwelled in that place in every corner corner. When we let the word of Christ, God's word dwell in us, we are giving it every corner, every closet, every piece of our lives and our heart that we know it so well that it takes up its residence and it dwells in us richly. We have an incredibly high picture of the authority of scripture here at the Vine Community Church. We believe that God's word is God's Word, and it's an encounter with Him when we encounter it. And it's not some guidebook by which we pick pieces out and say, hey, I really like this, but I don't know what to do with that, so I ignore it. We look at it and we say, God, what does Scripture say to me? It is the whole of God's redemptive picture. It is His perfect and most beautiful love letter for our lives, and we should know it and memorize it and bury it in our lives. But for a lot of us, the only time we encounter it is when you show up here. How can one time a week when you open God's Word, how can that be enough to let it dwell in you? To take up residence, to know it like the photographs in your own home. I can tell you where everything is in my house. Every piece, everything, I'm sure things get misplaced, but I can tell you where things go and what they look like. Because those things, I dwell in there. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. If you don't know it and aren't spending time in it and not reading it and not engaging it, how do we expect it to dwell in our hearts so that it pushes out anxiety and fear and frustration? We can't expect to surrender our lives to the peace of Christ if we're not opening ourselves up to God's very word, letting it speak into the darkest corners and the deepest fears. And he says, let it dwell in you as you do what? As you teach and admonish one another, right? And wisdom. And you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your heart. This is one of my, I just love this picture of the church. This is what this is. He's basically this group of believers saying, listen, let God's word dwell in you individually. As you do something really amazing. As you teach And admonish, which really just means to encourage and give advice to each other, right? In wisdom and as you sing songs and spiritual songs. In other words, as you engage in the community, you should be driven by your engagement and your heart with God's word. And you should teach and encourage and admonish and give advice and worship together, right? I don't know what your picture of church is. But for most of us in our Western culture, it is a show up, entertain me, tickle my life, right, with stories or with an hour of engagement or the 55-minute window, so that I will come back again next week, and then eventually in a year or so, I may give myself into volunteering in a life group or coming and showing up and easing my life into a next level. But I will come as long as you entertain me. And I'm not using that in a a negative sense. I'm just saying that that's how we come in. But the early church really was not this, right? It wasn't just some person standing up here and, and saying a bunch of things and telling stories. It was this movement that they would read these letters together and they would discuss them and they'd be moments of authentic, deep, and real vulnerability where they encouraged one another and shared deep life and food and things and stuff. And you can't do that by showing up in a church and sitting in the back row and saying, entertain me for an hour. Make me want to come back here. Look, I want to I want to be, I don't know if this is ever possible, but I want to be a part of church where that picture is ridiculously real. Where the movement is uh, about us being involved together, admonishing and teaching and giving worshiping and singing psalms and hymns and engaging in authentic, real movements of life where I become vulnerable to a people that I trust. Trust doesn't exist in our churches, right? Because we're petrified to be real with each other in the first place. And I've talked about this a lot, right? I mean, it's the one place, sadly, that we come in wearing all of our falsities, all of our masks, all of our things, because everybody else we look around has it some level together, And I don't want them to know that my life is falling apart. So we're very rarely vulnerable about our marriages, about our brokenness, about how awful our kids are, how awful I am, or whatever. We just hide those things. But what Paul's saying is something really, really different, right? That as we let the Word of God dwell in us, and we let the peace of Christ rule in us, We richly admonish and teach and encourage one another in wisdom. And we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? With gratitude in our hearts. Because we're a part of something, right, that's bigger than me. The people that love me and care for me and don't pass their judgment, but love me. Why? Because they've given themselves to the rule of Christ and we are part of one body. And then finally, we, last piece that we wrapped up with last week. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God through Him. Whatever you do, work, play, home, life, family, marriage, church, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. And I, I mentioned you last week, there's two real pieces there, right? What happens when you do something in someone else's name? You do it in their heartbeat and their character. You're a representative of them. So if you're living life and doing it in the name of Jesus, you're using his character and his heartbeat the way that he would. When you do something in someone else's name, they get the glory. When you're doing it in Jesus' name, he gets the glory, not you. Who cares what people think about you? I know you do, and I know I care what people think about me, but really, if we could get to a place where we said, look, all I care is what you think about Jesus. Like, He's the very reason I have life anyway. He's the reason I draw breath in the morning. He is my highest joy and my everything, and so I want Him to get glory, and I do anything in my life for Him. Now, that's not who I really am, but it's who I desperately desire to be. And be And look at these things put together. When you look at them together, this whole picture that Paul's painting, right? Chosen and holy and dearly loved, filled and clothed with humility and gentleness, bearing with each other, forgiving the way that Jesus has forgiven us, putting on love, letting the peace of Christ rule in us, highest joy, sufficiency, enough. Being thankful, letting God's word dwell in us so that we teach and encourage and live in vulnerability with each other. So that whatever we do, word or deed, actions, or our mouths, or our lifestyles, we do it for Jesus. I don't know why you come to church here. We haven't been around that long. Probably a lot of different reasons. But that picture is what I will fight for and long to be as long as we gather together. It is going to be a colossal mess trying to get there. Because relationships are messy and they are... Well, the gospel's messy, and when we begin to live it out, it makes relationships messy, and it makes things complicated, and it makes it not easy, and it doesn't have perfect walls and perfect pictures, and we can't put on a show for everybody by which we think we have it together. It's just people engaged in gospel movement. And I will fight for it as long as we gather together. This is, in 2016, who I desire for us to be. It's who I desire for my own life and for us as a church. What does your 2016 look like? But more so, what does your life look like moving forward? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you that you care for us and desire a relationship with us. I thank you, God, that even in the middle of our fears and failures and our frustrations, you are God. And I confess, Lord, just honestly, that your peace does not rule my heart. I have given a lot of things dominion in my life. A lot of ideas, a lot of attitudes, a lot of behaviors, a lot of stuff that I allow rule. A lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. But God, I deeply desire to be able to be at a place where I say, Jesus, you are my highest joy. And you are and will always be enough for me. So God, as we close our time here and as we worship you, I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts. You are our God and you are our King. And we ask this in your holy and perfect name as we stand together and close.